This is the Get Healthy 360 Podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today we have with us Hugh Carnahan. We're talking about, this is a very unique episode. So Hugh has ADHD, dyslexia, and he's talking about how he started real estate investing um, 10 months ago, and now he's up to, Hugh, correct me if I'm wrong, 85 units with ownerships in a motel and some commercial buildings and a coin-operated laundry. So that is, and I'm, I'm sure you'll correct that later on, but a huge ownership stake and a ridiculous amount of acceleration in acquisition of property in 10 months. So that's, that's, if you were a car, you'd be a supercar. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. And, uh, so that was 10 months and, uh, I found out about real estate investing September 18th of 2019. So it's been about a year and a month since I even discovered this was a thing. So that, that's, an incredible amount of execution in a, in a very, very quick time frame. Now, this podcast is going to be a little bit different where we're really, tr- and Hugh is very open, and, and thank you for that, Hugh. So we're going to really trace how he got from being a child with dyslexia and ADHD, being in the school system, if you're a parent of a kid with ADHD or dyslexia, he is both, or you're an adult with both either one of these problems, often... Um, there's a lot of issues with that, self-esteem issues, but I think this is a great podcast to show that school is not necessarily, is often not the only way that you can achieve things in life, and clearly he was an example of that. So we're just going to map out how he went from a kid with with these things against him to really a phenomenal execution in real estate and on his way to, I'm sure, really huge things in the financial real estate world, business world. So Hugh, thank you so much for joining and sharing your story. Chris, thanks so much for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited uh, to be here. So you're a kid, you have dyslexia, you have ADHD, everyone's telling you you're going to fail. How does someone deal with that? So I just kind of brute force it. A lot of it had to do with my upbringing. I just had to out try, outwork everyone else. Uh, I, you know, in college, I was uh, towards the very end. I mean, I was always at every office hours there ever was because I just couldn't understand uh, the, the content. So that's kind of where uh, I just, I just, I decided that I was told from a young age, I'm supposed to fail and um, that it'll be difficult to navigate if I'm you know, not on all these medications. And I just wouldn't accept that as a failure. So every time someone would do that, it'd be like fuel for the fire to say, you know, I don't really care what you say. I'm going to prove you wrong and just keep working, working, working. In growing up, you mentioned um, discussions offline. You mentioned that you had unique experiences growing up that that gave you a lot of drive to achieve things in life. Sure. Okay. So a little bit about my background. I was born in 1990, and my parents uh, are quite a bit older. So my father was born in 1929. He grew up during the Great Depression and uh, in the United States. My mother was born in 1952, and uh, uh, Taiwan at the time was a 
a third world country and it was also extremely very poor. So I have two parents that grew up extremely poor and they together had, had built a business and um, they entered China in, in 1989 and were business owners. So growing up, I would always go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth and, um, and, and just kind of see the thing. So it's really different for a lot of people in North America that don't have the perspective um, of seeing what a third, third world country looks like, which China absolutely was, even though we were in Shanghai, you know, back in the 90s. It was, um, you, you would definitely see poverty and a huge difference. So when you see poverty, especially for the people, this is, a, we're in North America, it's a North American audience. So when people see poverty, I don't know if they really understand what poverty means. And the reason that I'm asking this question is often in, in medicine and your general health, finances make a huge difference in your ability to buy healthy food, your, your access to healthcare. One of the most frequent causes of bankruptcy in the United States is actually healthcare costs. So for anyone to say that money doesn't matter, um, clearly has never been sick and had to pay an insurance deductible. So when you say poverty as a kid, can you describe some of the images or scenes that stick with you? Uh, sure. So I was extremely fortunate that uh, none of this happened to me. I just grew up around it and you don't, you don't really notice it. Uh, the streets are often filthy and dirty. Um, there are groups of homeless uh, beggars everywhere and broken spirits and, and there's almost hey everyone has a tough life in this area we all grew up tough you have some some worse than others so we don't even notice you you know a, a beggar or someone on the streets you don't even notice any of them because everyone grew up in the same situation and there's almost no willingness uh, to help and so so it was you know people not knowing where their next meal would come from um, is very, very uh, common. And I'm very fortunate that I have never had to experience that, but I grew up seeing it all around me. Um, if you were good on your luck or bad on your luck. And culturally, you know, being Taiwanese uh, and Asians generally very openly talk about money and wealth amongst their families. And it's exactly to build each other up. And, and it's always a prosperity. We hope for prosperity kind of a deal. One of the most cl clear things that I ever remember, I must've been eight years old. I was in Shanghai. We just came from a fancy dinner. I think someone got, uh, one of my family's got an award. It was a gold plated coin. I didn't know it wasn't real gold, but it was a gold plated coin. It was so cool. We get to the bottom of the uh, elevator and we step outside and there's immediately a bunch of homeless children who are begging for money. And I just had this horrible guilt. Um, so what my parents do is um, they, they always buy, uh, they'd always buy food and give them food. So we went to, uh, crazy enough, there was a McDonald's or actually I think it was a Burger King at the time, but they bought food and, and gave them food. So then we got in the car, we started driving off and my parents turn to me and they say, Hugh, the only difference between you and that child that was your age, that was begging and cold and, and filthy and has a horrible life. The only difference is that you were born to us and that child was born to someone else. You have an incredible gift. Don't waste it. And that just kind of really set in stone everything uh, for me for probably a maybe six, six to eight year old at the time. So that kind of 
it was always a uh, maybe internal personal core value. Don't fail. Don't give up. I have a gift. Don't make an excuse. So you finished high school. You went into com- computer IT, computer engineering. And do you want to talk about your philosophy, what you did, graduating, debt, thoughts on debt, et cetera? Sure. So uh, I was extremely fortunate. You know, my parents were entrepreneurs. Uh, when I was in college, uh, my, the biggest gift I, gift I ever got was when I graduated, I graduated with no student debt, which is a big deal in the United States. And the way I did that was a combination of getting scholarships from school, going to a state school. I went to Texas A&M and also, yeah, just getting scholarships. And then my parents being fortunate enough to fund that. I knew it was generous, but I really didn't realize the impact until like I was 26, 27. And all of my friends are still like struggling with debt. Um, So that was, that was, I was very grateful for that. But my last semester of college, I started volunteering as an IT intern for a financial advisor. And so I was running her IT stuff, her emails, and I was just, I would be at all of the meetings that they're always, she's always um, training people. And she came across the strategy and, and would always teach the strategy to young adults. These are 18 year olds, at that point, they'd be 20, 21 year olds, going into the world with no education, in, at least in the United States, no budgeting skills, nothing. And she taught one of her favorite strategies was pay yourself first. That did not resonate with me. I don't, I, I could not conceptually understand it. So she re-explained it. She said, okay, steal money from your own pocket. Hide the money from yourself immediately when you get a paycheck from the very first paycheck you ever get. Take it and set it aside in an account that's not your main account that you look at then pay all your bills, then whatever is left, have a fund money account, spend and blow everything else in that account, never feel guilty about it. If you do that from the very beginning, then you'll never notice that ever happened. I think uh, you might hopefully have a lot of uh, interns or some residents that are listening. They're on really tight budgets. My girlfriend is an intern right now, she's a DO, and go read The White Coat Investor, but basically, in two to three years, you guys are going to get a crazy salary bump. And if you can just for a few years, keep living frugally, you've just been doing it, you're going to have a huge difference. So I was saving coming out of college. Uh, I tried to save 50% of my income, uh, just, just trying to live below my means. And then what I would do is I'd allocate funds to, I call it the Hugh fund fund. And then whatever was in that account, bottom out, blow it out all the time, make sure that you have a bank account that doesn't hit you with fees, but it wouldn't matter what, it, what happens in that account. So one of the most dangerous things was if you see money in your account, you spend it. So make an account that that's intentionally a part of it and protect yourself in, in the meantime. So even with the, a lot of discipline and paying yourself first, sometimes life happens. Sure. So you, you got married and then it didn't quite work out. Like a lot of people, I believe the odds are roughly 50% or it was so. was my practice, practice marriage. There you go. And sometimes some people need that. So not, not to get into the, the Jerry Springer version of your marriage, but what are the things you, you learned from that first marriage and lessons you could share with others moving forward? First and foremost, uh, divorce is very expensive. Also, uh, you divide your friends up, no matter how much you think that 
your couple of friends will cannot be on both sides and that kind of sucks. But let's, we can go at it from a financial perspective first for the impacts of that. Would, would you like to start there? Sure. So um, I had that saving strategy, probably amassed maybe 50 grand here or there. Uh, at the time, I'm an IT uh, guy in San Diego with my wife. Uh, she at the time was in the Navy. Our combined incomes are nearing $200,000. And so, so we're saving, we're, but we're also spending, uh, and we're doing that. <clears throat> so when I, so yeah, we amassed about $50,000 during the divorce, things were split up, bills were split up and effectively I ended up losing all of that. I also had, um, two versions of stock for my stock company or for that my company would provide us. The first version is just vested stock for working there, X amount vests after so long that you've worked there. Second kind was ESPP, which is Employee Stock Purchase Plan, which you guys can Google. And I basically, at the end of the divorce, I had to buy out the current value of the shares from uh, my now ex-wife. And so that's kind of, after leaving, all of our savings was gone um, or, or split up or divided. Actually, her and I really didn't get very much. The lawyers got everything. So if you guys can mutually agree on it, um, that's fantastic uh, and, and, and do that. <clears throat> Another thing, it's super taboo in North America to generally talk about. Um, I would absolutely have a discussion early on with whoever you're with, whether you're married, hopefully before you're married or you're not, about uh, prenup and postnup, depending on what states you live in. The reason why is because you already have a prenup. It's whatever the laws that your state say, and it's an arbitrary judge or a decision by somebody else. So you already have an agreement on how things are separated. All partnerships come to an end. Some, you know, many, many years later, uh, maybe due to natural causes, some business partnerships end. And this is the same kind of concept. I wear a seatbelt every day. I don't expect to get in a car crash. I buy insurance. I don't expect my house to burn down, but it's just a preventative thing. It's touchy, but why not have something where both people can agree how things will end? There's so much anxiety that is caused because there's no plan in place. If you guys see things going towards an end, try to correct it, fix it. But if not, there's already a predetermined plan. Mediation's always easier and uh, no one wins but the lawyers. And... Um... <clears throat> Going through the first experience, what are some of the things, especially with your success as a real estate investor, and um, you mentioned that you have a girlfriend now, what are some of the things that you learned through that experience that you're looking for in the future versus what, what you thought you were looking for in the past? Sure. Um, I'll never forget, it was my manager at the time, um, the company I worked for, and she told me, trust your gut. Your gut is the smartest thing ever. It will never lead you wrong. Okay, so I started listening to myself. There were all these red flags. Before my marriage, if there was a red flag and I really liked someone, I may um, just try to explain it away or make an excuse on their behalf. Afterwards, I now immediately identify if there's a red flag. I internalize what that actually means and then I try to bring it up for discussion. It's also complete, I don't care how long you've been married or whatever, it's also completely okay that things don't work out. It happens to hundreds of thousands of people a year. 
it's better that you guys have peace of mind and can, that's okay. So if you're going into a relationship, let's say you've been dating someone for five years, it's much better to say, oh my gosh, I had all this time, especially if you're younger, all this time invested in this relationship. It's okay if it doesn't work out. And, and, and that's just kind of a, a personal growth thing that I had to go through um, to, to internalize that. So I also, since then, very, very forthcoming about any issues, any red flags, and just try to have open lines of communication. And that's been very, very helpful. And they say that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if you have a significant other, and especially if you're married, that's who you're spending a ton yes. of time with. Yes. So um, learning from your first experience, what are some of your top red flags and some of your top, this is a great thing? Because I feel like relationships, whether it's your life partner or if it's a business partner, they're often similar. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think very critical ones are going to be core values. Um, you guys will have to determine whatever that is for yourself. Vices. So like if one person's a drinker and the other person does not, cannot stand drinking, that's, uh, you know, going to be probably a point of contention. Fiscal spending is a huge one. If someone's naturally a saver and the other person is naturally a spender, that could cause uh, resentment. And um, so, so those are things to all be on the same page about. There's two things that I would go a little bit further. I would certainly take the Myers-Briggs test with the other person, try to just understand how the other person communicates, and then the five love languages test. Those are super, super helpful. I've used them ever since. And they just allow you to understand how the other person receives information. And and also, if they're upset or communicating to you, it allows you to understand maybe how that other person communicates and what it really means to you. So you can kind of play tr translation there. Those are super big helps. Those are, those are some phenomenal points. Um, so you, you transition, you get to, you move past the divorce and then now you've, after diligently saving all this money, you've kind of lost a lot of it. What do you do next? So I bought my uh, wife out of the little stock uh, that I had at the time, the value of the ESPP. And I had still had some, um, in the some shares in uh, that just vested. And I just had those, and then I just kind of forgot about it. I, I didn't actually forget about it. I just didn't do any, anything with them. I kept living my life like normal. And um, over time, I just completely forgot. So three or four years later, uh, so well, hold on. after I left, um, I actually moved away from California back to my home state of Missouri. At that time, we were making close to $200,000. My income at the time was $100,000. And I moved, took a 40% pay cut and moved to Missouri and started immediately saving tons of money because the cost of living was so much lower here that the almost $200,000 salaries that we, my wife and I had at the time combined were like, we couldn't save any money on that. Suddenly, I'm able to save $1,000 a month. Um, of course, it's just me as one person, but it, it was a, a big eye-opener. I went into a manufacturing company and I started learning about lean manufacturing um, and starting to uh, get into just how systems and processes worked. I spent the next three years doing that. And if someone, oh, wait, so if someone wants to learn about, because th this, for anyone listening, like there are these little, little nuggets that will come into play later on. So this is why I'm going to ask this now. If someone wants to learn about systems and processes, how would they learn about that? 
If someone wants to learn about systems and processes, there is one book they need to go get. It's also available for free on YouTube. It is called Two Second Lean. It's by Paul Akers. It's four hours and 22 minutes long. If you can't read, listen to it. I can't read. I actually watched a video called Lean is Simple, and it's all about systems and processes. It's an hour, 37 minutes, 44 seconds long, I think. And that changed my life forever. And the entire trajectory, one, altered from there. Super simple. If I can understand it, anyone can understand it. I'm an extremely average to below average person. Well... I would disagree with you, but with, okay. That gets extraordinary results because of that book. So two second lean with no, no, I'll say, so no conflicts of interest. I'm assuming no conflicts of interest. No, I mean, except for it changed my life. I don't own it or, you know, don't get sponsorships, nothing like that. So those guys just, I mean, make the rest of my life easy. So two second lean. All this finance stuff we're about to talk about. So now we're getting into the, the really interesting real estate stuff. So you read the two second lean, you become an expert in systems and processes. So let's fast forward to, this is going to be, a, this is going to be kind of, I know what this is going to be a little bit odd, but let's get into, so you want to buy solar panels. Okay. So we'll talk about the stocks and what happened with that. <clears throat> I forgot about the stocks and there was, um, the, then all of a sudden my old company starts popping up on the news and it's like, Oh my gosh, the stock's going through the roof. It's going to hit 300. It's going to hit 300. And at the time I, you know, kind of ignore it. And then just all this hype. So I'm like, okay, it's going to hit $300 a share. Um, that means that the banks likely want to make a move at just below that, which I think is 90, $90 or $95. I'm going to put mine at $90 a share or $89 a share, something like that. So I put in what's known as a limit order. If the stock gets to 290 or $289, then sell all my shares. So that happened. I just woke up one day because I was in China at the time running a manufacturing facility. Woke up and to a notification that I sold all my shares and I now have $221,000. And boy, Uncle Sam was just so happy to divest myself of uh, some taxes there. So that's that's pretty much where uh, I had what happened with the stocks. That then I did not, again, I've been saving. I'm not an investor. I don't know anything about this. I just leave it in the, 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 the federal money market account. It's just sitting there drawing no interest and I just leave it. And so I just go about my business. I have no idea what to do with it. So a few months go by, I go back. I'm now back in Missouri from my China trip and I want to buy solar panels. And so I go through the process of buying solar panels. I talk to the guy and I'm bidding four or five contractors against each other because, well, that's my day job. I wrote about systems processes. I get along really well with one of the owners, uh, one of the salespeople who happens to be the owner. And I spend four or five days negotiating. And like every time I'm bringing people back and, you know, I'll, I'll bid them against each other and, and always really friendly. And I just start teaching him about systems and processes all the time. Hey, this is going to make your life easy. Here's an example. Tell me about your processes. So we go lay it out. This guy's got a, a deal that's worth $130,000 that he can sell me. And he looks at me and he says, Hugh, this is dumb. Don't buy solar panels. Instead, go to, big, go to Google, type in Bigger Pockets Burr, B-R-R-R-R. -R -R -R. Four hours. 
four R's. You should buy rental properties and use the money to pay for your electricity instead of buying the solar panels. And I was like, that's a very odd thing for the owner of a, sale, a solar panel company to tell me. Well, I had spent four days constantly talking to this guy and training him about systems and processes because I'm all excited about it. And that's where he just recognized something. And I totally understand it now that I'm on this side of the fence that, that he recognized I'd probably be successful and in real estate because of the way I thought. So, um, <clears throat> so I, that was September 18th of, um, 2019 by, so, so that's the day I learned about real estate investing. So let's clarify these dates. So you hear about bigger pockets and the birth strategy on what date? September 18th of what year? 2019. September 18th, 2019. So how did you educate yourself? I went to bigger pockets. Um, I went to Google and then YouTube popped up and I did exactly as he said. He said, type in B R R R R bigger pockets. It popped up and I just watched the podcast and that was episode like 350 or something like that. I was like, Oh, okay. So I decided to go and and it got me all jazzed up and excited because it talked about a very easy way. It it seemed complicated, but it seemed kind of straightforward, but there's this amazing way that you can just take money and turn it into more money. And I didn't know how to do that, but it seemed easy. So I went to episode one of bigger pockets on what date on September. And there's a reason I'm doing this. So you you start on what day did you actually like you found bigger pockets and what day did you start going through it? That same day, September. Okay, 18th. so same day. So you hear about it, same day. You start listening. How long did it take you? Each episode is about an hour. Some are an hour and a half. How long did it take you to get through these 300 episodes? Um, I, well, right. So I don't know how long it took me to go, get through them. What I do know is because of my ADHD, one, the reason I did it immediately is because of a lean principle that says the only way to win is to do it right now. Um, but also with my ADHD, if I don't do things immediately, I will not follow through. I'll forget about it or get sidetracked. So this seemed important. So I immediately listened to it. Um, and that was September 18th. By October 15th, I had created a real estate LLC, which I had no idea how to do, or an LLC at all, which I had no idea how to do. And uh, I purchased my first deal December 28th. So you also went through all the bigger pockets books, correct? And this is not an ad for bigger pockets. I mean, the, the reason that we're discussing this is just the resources he used, right? To do yeah. What he so did. This is not an ad for bigger pockets, but my life again would be completely in a different place if it weren't for all this free information from all these professionals that are the experts in their field. Similar to uh, this podcast here, you're bringing in experts from the field to teach very specific things. That's all that that this site does, and it's all for free. So in basically three months, you, so this is the dedication. So with ADHD, with dyslexia, you listen to the podcast two and a half times. How did you fit all that time in? So probably by October 15th, I had at least listened through episode 300. Um, the way I did that was because of my ADHD, um, I didn't know I could learn or read. I knew I couldn't read, right? In my entire childhood, I grew up, I was I literally, I was on hooked on phonics and that didn't work. I got garbage marks in school. So I knew they kept talking about all these books and like the books were just not on the table for me. They were not in the cards. I knew it, but I started listening to the podcasts. Well, I had picked up a habit 
from the, the two second lean space about listening to things on 2x speed because the bottleneck is not um, the bottleneck is not you guys right now listening to my voice. The bottleneck is me saying them. So I had already been listening to things for 2x speed for a very long time. So on YouTube, I just turn it to 2x speed and then I would do housework. So I'd be learning while I would be doing menial tasks. Well, I hated doing the dishes. I hated mowing. I hated doing the laundry. I hated cleaning the house. That was a horrible nightmare. I don't like doing any of that because my brain's not engaged. And for ADHD, I'll literally do anything else but that. But I also enjoyed learning officially. I didn't even know that. But at 2x speed, it was able to keep my brain engaged enough that I wouldn't, my mind wouldn't wander, but I could consume enough of the content. Don't take any notes. I don't, yeah, I don't study. I can't study. I'm literally listening at 2x speed while I'm doing chores and while I'm driving to and from work. So I get off work, let's say it's 5 p.m. All right, I go to bed at 9 p.m. It's four hours. All right, so let's say I take three of those hours and I'm listening to, to Bigger Pockets. I can crush six podcasts in three hours. But I'm doing that like every single night of the week. On the weekends, I'm doing that. In the car, I'm doing that. So I got more training in that time than ever. And then they started talking about several books. If you go through it, you start episode one and start listening. Several books keep popping up about these super fancy, super successful people turn around. They're like, oh my gosh, you got to read this book. And then like, there's patterns. There's several books that keep appearing. So I was like, man, I can't read. What am I going to do? And then, so I got an audible account and I bought the books and I listened to the books on 2.5 X speed. And I was for the very first time, that was the first time in 20 years that I'd ever read a book, listened to the book, and it was complete game changer. And literally all, there's tons of books that are recommended that constantly, continuously lay the roadmap and give you the foundation of like where to go. All the podcasts and the books literally say the exact same thing and I'll repeat it now. I am not smart. Someone very successful who came this way before me said this is a very boring, straightforward way to wealth do exactly these things. So what books would you recommend? What books were they? <clears throat> okay. So here's the books in, in order of the order that I would uh, read them in the order that I actually did read them. Um, and if, if you're brand new or you're a veteran and you're already in real estate, it doesn't matter. I listen to these because you can always pick something new from them. So I'd start off with a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Then a book called... Um, Millionaire Next Door. I can't remember the, the name of that book. Followed by Set for Life by Scott Trench. Followed by Brandon Turner's The Book on Real Estate Property Investing. Followed by David Green's Long Distance Real Estate Investing, which is all about systems and processes related to real estate. Followed by Burr Strategy, B-R-R-R-R, by David Green. Um, <clears throat> followed by House Hacking by Craig Curlock. If you listen to those books, you will have the foundation you need to either go out and immediately make good decisions or ask the questions because you at least know enough about what you don't know to ask educated questions. And that's, that was my foundation. 
I think I completed most of those by October 15th or definitely by November I had completed it before Thanksgiving. So did you, did you have any hobbies at this point? Did you watch any TV when you're going, educating yourself? Um, no, I cut TV out completely. That was a long time ago. Uh, my hobby was basically watching YouTube, uh, educational channels. Like there's, uh, smarter every day or Alex Steele's blacksmithing. Um, and, and just like, uh, I got my entertainment from YouTube and I was always already used to learning stuff from there. So it was a very easy transition for me to say, okay, well, instead of getting entertainment from YouTube, I'll get education from YouTube. Um, so my habits didn't really change. It was just what I was consuming, what content I was consuming changed. So then you go through a, a phenomenal pace, a lot of material, and you're looking for your first deal. So your first deal was not a small deal. We're talking about, so let's, we're getting to the nitty gritties of now first deal. Right. Okay, so I'll, I'll preface one thing. Again, this is not, I'm not affiliated with bigger pockets at all. On Thanksgiving Day or something like that, I bought the Bigger Pockets Pro membership, um, which gives me access to calculators. They have tools built out that allow you to analyze deals and they have videos online that teach you about those tools and, and how to use them. And then multiple books constantly talked about practice running the numbers on deals. This is what they look like. Put in estimated expenses. I'm like, I have no idea. I've never done any of this before. It's super scary. Just so. And another thing they reiterate constantly is just do it. Making a decision is more important than what decision you made. And I really took that to heart. And that's kind of how I lived my entire life. So with those, I started practicing while I was listening to books. I would practice and I'd probably run five deals a day. Uh, where do I get the deals to run? I would literally just go to Zillow, find somewhere around me, type stuff in. I'd have a friend's house. I'd be drinking beer at a buddy's house. And I'd say, oh, hey, I'm going to run the numbers in your house. Hey, dude, if you rent your house, it can be this much. Uh, I was in California. I ran the deals on that house. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. You're screwed for the rest of your life. Uh, so like, I was like, I don't know why you're living here. What, what, what's wrong with you? And they're like, I know I have to be here because I'm in the military. So uh, lots of fun. So I'm just running these deals and practicing while I'm doing this education. And I'm sure I, I look back now at the original deals I did ran the numbers for the calculations and um, they are all terrible at the beginning, but I got better and better and better as I practiced. Same thing with uh, doctors, right? Or uh, you guys uh, doing your residency. The purpose of it is to put you through thousands and thousands of scenarios and hours where you get good practice and then you can make informed decisions later. So it was the same situation. It's just applied in a real estate context, which I could do sitting behind the computer screen. And you got in a lot of practice in a short time just by... It's a great strategy because often people complain they don't have time, but just the way you set that out is is a great, I think, um, roadmap for how to do this. So then, so you've you've put you've put in the time, you've gone through a lot of material, you've practiced a lot of running the numbers. So you start looking for properties, and then how do you fall into a into your first deal? Um, so I started making offers. Um, the first deal I actually bought, I, I made an offer. Uh, I was looking at, I'm in the Midwest, I'm in Missouri. <clears throat> so I, one thing I identify with is not appreciation. I do not like gambling and appreciation, meaning if you buy a house for $100,000, that um, it might go up to $150,000. That's gambling on appreciation. I buy a house at what I know the price is, 
and what it could rent for today at market rates and can my mortgage cover it? <clears throat> so I'm looking at these like little dinky <clears throat> $30,000 to $50,000 houses, which you can either buy a car or you can buy a house. Well, that means that that house is really, really terrible house. <laughs> so I'm looking at these. I'm making little offers. <clears throat> I make an offer to uh, some uh, big landlord guy, and uh, he's like, "No, I'm just going to repair it. You know, you didn't offer me enough. Uh, I'll just, I'll just fix it up." Okay. So then I start looking at. Okay, I've got this two hundred thousand dollars. I'm going to put it in something. I've already made the decision that I'm going to go to this. I'm going to do the, the follow through. So I'm looking at six plexes. Which, and so I'm there outside of a building looking at a sixplex brick building made, you know, 1900s, whatever. And my realtor literally trips over a piece of cement in front of this other house that's right next door. Don't even notice the house. We're not there for that house. I look at the front of that house and I notice because I'm on, um, Zillow constantly running these deals for these low end properties that that is a low end property. And there's this garbage little handwritten sign, you know, it's like for sale or whatever stuck in the front yard. And I was like, okay, well, like the people who own the sixplex, they're out of California and they have no intention of selling. Can you give them a call on this thing? And I'll just cut my teeth on it. Like I'll do a burr. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll do a burr. Let's try it. And so he calls and he's like, oh yeah, only problem is that's, that's a part of a larger deal. You know, the, these, these folks, they're, they're selling 26 properties. Uh, that's just one of them. And I was like, okay, well, how many, are, how many of them do you think I can buy? Uh, and he, you know, like, like three or four, maybe five. That, that, that seems like it's taking on a lot. And, um, and then he's like, well, I can probably buy them all. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, all right, it's just like buying a house. You take 20% down. They're asking $1.3 million for 26 properties. So raise the difference and put a down payment down and get, a, get the rest from a bank. And I was like, whoa, what? Can I even do that? Like, can I buy them all? So I go back and I run the numbers and I ask for all the things I've been practicing. I ask for, I, oh, by the way, I, didn't, I was not qualified to do any of this and I'd asked for the wrong numbers, but I had such a safety margin um, that it was okay. I asked for rent rolls, which isn't good. You should ask for actual expenses. Uh, it's called a trailing T12, which is more uh, proper for um, uh, commercial deals. But basically, it it, that's real expenses and uh, profit. Uh, I asked for rent rolls. Rent rolls is, hey, these should be at this. you know. And I started running the numbers. There's two numbers I pay attention to. One's the 50% rule, which is on average, it will take 50% uh, of the income generated from the rent will go towards expenses. It gets kind of cattywampus if you're in like weird markets like San Francisco or one of your big cities, but for most of the Midwest, that, that will work. And I look at the 1% rule. Well, even if I bought it at full price, if all of them were filled, it's pulling in $15,080 a month. Based on the full price, it was like 1.38% rule. Uh, 1% rule is if you buy a house for $100,000, it should rent for $1,000. It's just a quick rule of thumb that makes it to where, do I even want to continue to analyze a deal? Because it's not going to pan out if it doesn't meet the 1% rule for me. So I look at this thing as 1.38%. If I buy at full price, well, I'm um, half Asian, so I really like negotiating. So I'm, I'm not going to buy it at full price for sure, especially because they're in such a horrible condition. 
So we enter negotiations and we get them down to one. Uh, my, my broker says, let's get it down to $1.1 million, which sounds crazy. I'm like, what am I talking about? I'm talking about borrowing a million dollars. I don't know what I'm doing. I just learned about this stuff three months ago. So we negotiate. I'm like, no, I, I read a book. Oh, I read a book called Never Split the Difference, which is a negotiation tool. It's very good. If you guys are doctors, it allows you to communicate with, you know, kind of sneak past some things. I, I recommend that book as well. But I was like, give them this number. And it was like 1.067, you know, it was under $1.1 million. They counter under 1.1, blew my uh, real estate agent's mind. It was like, what? But, <clears throat> so we make the offer, we get it signed, we take it to the bank to get it appraised. It takes like three months. It's crazy. It's like $13,000 in fees, definitely not refundable. Like I'm out of the pocket for this. So we're going through the process. Bank comes back and they say, it's not worth that much. These houses are in horrible shape. It's only worth a max of this. You'll have to raise the, the difference. So we go back and negotiate the price down even further to $1.061 million. And then I had my $221,000 and I borrowed the rest of my money for the fam from family for a down payment. And we closed the deal. And that was, we signed the paperwork on December 28th of 2019. So how was that? Okay. So first question, when you first take it over, was it cash flowing? When I first, yes. So uh, there were 26 units. There were 20, 20, there were five vacant units when I took it over. So there's 21 units that are filled. And then how did you manage the repairs on these houses? Sure. So first thing, um, not cash flow. For those of you that don't know, there's income and then there's cash flow, which is everything left over after you pay your note, after you pay your expenses. So I was cash flowing maybe like four grand a month after all expenses. And I'm supposed to be, supposed to be saving that for maintenance and capital expenditures, which is like a roof goes out or a water heater goes out. I definitely have zero reserves. And once I pay the mortgage, the note, I spend 100% of what's left on renovations. And, and I have no reserves. So it's a pretty scary place uh, that I was in at the time. But I thought, at a worst case, I'll sell one house for $50,000 and I'll be able to pay my mortgage for another 10 months. That's how I justified it. So I was very fast and loose and just knew the deal was so good. And I had confidence in my systems and process ability. Um, so I'm, I'm now cash flowing, taking what's left, which is three to four grand a month. And I'm attempting to renovate units as tenants uh, move in. Now, a lot of people yeah. when they're investing, there is the thought, well, I will save money by painting myself or laying tile myself or fixing a roof myself or cutting the grass or whatever it is they want to do. But as you talked about, this is why I talked about that lean book and, and that systems thinking sure. that you have. So how did you navigate that? Because even if you wanted to, you have 26 houses, you can't sure. really navigate them all yourself. So um, I think the vast majority of the folks that listen to your podcast are doctors or in the medical field and they're experts at that. 
And you guys don't go around and doing all the, all of, you're not answering calls. You're not doing the stuff with systems and processes that are handling all those things. I have no business picking up a hammer and, or picking up a paintbrush and going and painting a wall. Can I do it? Yes. Is it a good use of my time? No. My value is making high level, high impact decisions as quickly as I can and building in the costs of a property manager, a, um, a contractor, and being able to do all the renovations because a professional that's done this for the last 15 or 20 years can go in and whip something around real quick. Or I can say, I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what materials to use. You know, I don't know all the pitfalls that they've already learned as a professional. I'm going to let them use their expertise and I'm going to pay them accordingly. And I'm going to know enough about what they should do. So I don't get screwed financially. Now, in specifically in real estate, what are your tips on picking the people that you are assigning or paying for these, uh, assigning these tasks to? Like, how do you judge your contractor or your plumber or your electrician guy or HVAC guy or whatever, what have sure. you? And, and I'll preface this uh, before. And it also depends on your goals. So I am a hands-off investor. That is my goal. I do not want to be doing all the things. I'm also not experienced in that. I bought this as an investment. My goal is to manage three or four people that do all the work for me. And in the entire real estate industry, there's already people that are jumping up and down and bidding, trying to get you to use them, which is fantastic. If your goal is, I want to be a plumber, I want to be a contractor, I want to do this, then this advice is not for you. There are other things. This advice is for folks that are doing that. So number one piece of advice is absolutely use a property manager. 100%. There's legal battles. There's legal advice. There's all kinds of stuff. You don't know. You're not an expert at renovating. It's not just picking up rent um, checks. It's all kinds of tenant screening and, and navigating things. Build it into your cost. Pay a professional to do it. Have professional accounting and just make the high-level decisions. So that's number one. Now, with that, your question was, how do you go through and make the determinations. One book that I would highly recommend about all about systems and processes is Long Distance Real Estate Investing by David Green. The reason I suggest that book, even though I'm investing in my own town, is because the book is saying, hey man, you live in California, you're investing in Tennessee. You need to have really, really good systems and processes. Here's how you vet it. You vet this person this way, this contractor this way. Here's how you set up a contractor draw. Also, after reading all these books, I kind of, I didn't know raw material prices, but I kind of know what expectations are, right? You don't know. I kind of knew how to talk to people. I kind of knew how to ask questions that made them think I knew what I was talking about, had experience when I had zero experience. Yeah. So read those books. There are free resources online. Do research. Get what super successful people have done for you. Listen to what they have to say. Uh, and then try to glean what you can and apply it to your own situation. So what is the status? So you've had these now for what, 10 months-ish? So I've had these for 10 months. Um, what have you done with them in 10 months? So I cash flowed them. I was living hand-to-mouth consistently. Sometimes I would take money from my W-2 job to throw into a project because I just didn't have the money. And um, I'd start like, I mean, I was like selling stuff. I mean, I didn't need to. I could have made it work. But I was selling stuff. I was like, okay, I really don't need this. You know, I had this widget laying around my house. I try to sell that, get 200 bucks here or $300 there. That way I can buy 
LED bulbs, whatever, because I have no reserves. I did not do this the smart way. I'm cash flowing all these rental properties. I'm taking zero money off the top. Come month 10, I go into a cash out refinance and I approach a different bank than the bank I currently have my loan with. And I say, listen, bank, um, I have this property. It's worth X amount. I have raised the value this much. The reason I didn't go to the current bank that I was at is because I already approached them and they basically turned me down. So I went looking, shopping around. Very transparent, very open about all this. They give me a note. They do the evaluation. And on September the 1st, I was able to do, my property is appraised for 1.342 or $1.35 million or something like that. I was able to pull out a max of 85% LTV. I borrowed uh, the max amount, paid off the original note to the to Bank A. Right? Bank B is giving me a loan now. Bank A is now paid off. I then borrowed like 50 grand from family for the down payment. I paid them off plus interest. Um, I was In total, I was able to pull out $329,000. And I only put in $221,000 during that time. And to clarify this for people who are listening, so if you made $325,000, that would be taxed at some ridiculous mm. tax rate. So you really wouldn't keep much of it. Well, you keep a lot of it, but you'd also give a lot to for taxes. Correct. This is a non-taxable event. So this so is far. just cash. You've just refinanced and This is just cash that you have now to go to Vegas and play roulette. Yeah, if I wanted to. If you I wanted could, to. could do that. But you don't do that. What do you do with that? Okay. So I cash out, non-taxable event. Um, I took the money. I officially have reserves for the very first time ever. You didn't buy a car and, or anything, did you? Huh? You buy a Porsche or something? I didn't buy a Porsche, no. Did I you actually buy anything? Buy, did you buy anything? Uh, I actually Fun? sold my pickup truck, drove a Honda Civic that was like my sister's because it gets really good gas mileage. I threw the money from my pickup truck into Tesla stock it went up. I sold the Tesla stock, got all my money back, and bought a Lexus RX 450h. To be honest, I haven't. I don't know anything about cars, but it it's, sounds like a really it's, nice car. It's a nice luxury SUV, which I don't like, but it was a great deal. So I'm going to try to sell that, and make ten grand on that, and then buy an <laughs> old dinky pickup truck. But awesome! You're even making money on the cars. All right, so you have you have this large sum of cash. You don't go crazy and buy a bunch of stuff. What do you do with it next? Um, I took. It and I paid off any credit card debt I had at the time. Uh, I did not use credit card debt to finance my any of the renovations. I would, I would buy things on a credit card, but I pay it off every month to zero regardless. I don't care if I have no money in my checking account or two dollars in my checking account. I I will deplete my checking account to always have zero interest. So that's good. Right now, I have all the money in reserves, and I'm considering starting a, a lending thing to be a hard money lender to help brand new real estate investors do that. That's what I'm planning with my funds. But outside of that, I found, I kept running deals and running numbers. And what I came across was a deal on a hard corner, which is the corner right up against an intersection that was a gas station, a motel, and a commercial unit. And there was a coin laundry inside of the motel, which I didn't know about until we bought. And we had two extra units of the commercial building that we bought that I didn't even factor in because I didn't know they existed. I ran the deals, ran the numbers and found a crazy deal. The company, that was, the, the gentleman who was selling it uh, was wanting to sell anything that was hassle or work. 
and just kind of enjoy life, retire a little bit. I think his daughter moved uh, to Colorado, so he wanted to go be with uh, her. And so the expectation that he has as a seller is I'm going to sell this. Someone's going to tear all this down and my properties are only worth the, the land value under it because it's the second most trafficked intersection in the third largest city in my state. But I'm a cash flow guy. I don't like betting on appreciation. So I run the numbers and I find out that this thing is pulling in income wise, like $24,000 a month. I run all the expenses and I actually asked for the correct documentation this time. I find the expenses and it should cash flow $13,000 a month of expense after expenses, which I then would need to use to pay off uh, a bank with rather than approach a bank, which I totally could have done. Uh, oh, and all, all of the properties are underperforming. Literally, there are leases that were signed in 1988 that are still in force as we speak right now um, that they've never raised rents on. I mean, it, it was just like crazy good real estate. Um, and the, the guy was running it and he was just a real nice guy. And he didn't need it. He had way, he had tons of other properties that he was making money on. So he kind of forgot about this one. So I approach the family who loaned me the initial money that I used for my first down payment that I'd already paid them back in full plus interest, which they did not ask for. I just gave them my plus interest. And I approached them. I said, Hey, here's this deal. Look at it. It's crazy. Let's buy it. And so I have a 25% equity stake, which means I'm a 25% owner. I brought zero money to the table because the deal was so good. The day one, when the deal closed, it's worth at least you know, $8 million just because the land it's sitting on, if you sell it like three years from now, and it's underperforming, it could be at like $40,000 a month cash flow, $40,000 a month income. And I'm a 25% owner and I split the um, remaining cash flow after expenses 50-50 to me, bring $0 to the table. So just to clarify that deal. So it's, it's a, this huge deal. Commercial. Your commercial deal. So your family put up the money, you get a 25% equity stake for when you actually liquidate this, but you right. get 50% of the cash flow for managing 50% it. 50% of the cash flow. That's and, a great and, deal for them. That is right. a very, they're, that's they're not a, doing anything. They're, that's they're a great deal money. for them. Yeah. They're going to throw money at it and they're, they're not going to blink an eye at it. Uh, not, not about the money, but they're not going to be worried. I get to be the one that goes in and runs it and figures out what's wrong and the water boilers you know, whatever, all those things, I have to do all the, the legwork, but, but as a reward for that, I get 50%. So how are you managing a gas station and you said a, a coin operated laundry, station, coin laundry, and, uh, motel, and then and a motel. Uh, those are three totally separate businesses. Correct. So how are you navigating that? Because based on what you've told me, you don't really have an experience in any of those. I don't have experience in any of them. So how are you managing um, it? So uh, I go back to that book, Two Second Lean. It's all about systems and processes. I already have what's known as the core four in place, which is uh, your lender, your contractor, your realtor, and your property manager. I already had those systems in place for my other properties. So it was really almost a seamless transition for the gas station. We own the building. It's someone else that's operating it, right? They're renting from us. We're just landlords. That was easy, except for- So you just rent the gas station out to someone else to run? Just rent the gas station out to someone else to run. Just rent the commercial space out to someone else, uh, or someone else is someone else is renting the commercial space from us. There's like six or eight small businesses in there; <clears throat> they're just renting. The motel is the only one 
that uh, we have to figure out. So we're currently in the process of that. But I'm already used to running a, you know, systems and processes. It's all about, you know, it's not about going in and cutting expenses. You had, uh, oh, and the motel came with two employees. So suddenly we're now, uh, you know, <laughs> we're, we've got two 1099 contractors that, that, that came with the motel that, that have operated it for the last 10, 20 years, whatever it may be. So, and then are you, do you have a full-time job during all of this? Oh yes. I have a full-time job. Um, this probably takes up like 10 hours of my week after, after works. Totally. Maybe less. Uh, it's, it's 10 hours for me because I want to do more. Um, but it's, it's all the systems and processes. I was able to basically build wealth while I was working a full-time job. Uh, again, none of the things I am doing for my day job are, you know, there's no bleed over there except for I'm really good with systems and processes, which is anyone can be good at. And if you, what, okay. So with systems and processes, which I feel like it's, it's a throw, a, a term that's thrown around a lot, but if you had to say, what are three of the most misunderstood or what are some, or not three, but what are some of the most misunderstood things about systems and processes that people often get wrong? Um, okay. Uh, very, very simple and straightforward. Um, there's value added and non-value added, uh, being able to see that people, uh, being able to see what's known as the eight wastes. These are lean principles here. Um, and then uh, being able to uh, set a standard every day to just make a teeny tiny change. So value added versus non-value added. A very simple example would be coffee, a coffee maker. So in the manufacturing space, value added is all, is anything that changes the physical part or product in the service space. It's anything that um, advances, you know, that, that, that the customer is paying for. So let's take you making a cup of coffee. The only thing that is value added in the whole process is grinding the beans. If you grind the beans only during the seconds that the beans are being grinded. And when water is going through the beans. So the, Filling the water is non-value added. The motion walking to the sink is non-value added. The uh, opening of the tray is non-value added. The finding and fumbling in your drawer for your filter is non-value added. All those things are extra because the only thing that actually creates the product that you're going to use is the bean, the water going through the coffee. So, it's, it's being able to see the difference between value-added and non-value-added and then not be defensive about it. If you go to another human being and you start talking about wastes and the action that they're doing or a value-added thing and a non-value-added thing and an action that they're doing that they care about, that is very, people tend to get very defensive. Just because something's not value-added does not mean it's not necessary. It's being able to see those things. So you, to clarify that point, can you give another example? All right. Let's imagine a chef is cooking, cooking you dinner. In my opinion, that is the same as a manufacturing step because he is providing you a product, it's not a service. The waiter who brings you the thing is a service, but the chef is actually producing the product for you. So reaching forward and picking up a knife, non-value added, cutting an onion, well, taking that knife and moving it towards the onion until it touches the onion, non-value added. Slicing through it during that one split second, that adds value. It changes the, pro the product. Then lifting it up, 
does not add value. Moving the knife slightly over, touching the knife to the onion again, preparing for the next cut, non-value added, and then slicing again, that adds value for that split second that it's cutting through it. Just because they're not value added does not mean they're not necessary, but it is a value, it is an opportunity to improve. The reaching for ingredients in the cup, uh, cupboard, non-value added. Reaching for a pan, non-value added. Food actually cooking in the pan, that is adding value because it's changing the product towards what you, towards the final bit. So it's kind of a difficult thing to... So then how do you apply that to real estate? Okay. So for real estate, it's the same thing. It's what are what is your value versus their value? Let's take a contractor. Same thing. The contractor's value is physically changing the house to be rentable. Not reaching for his hammer or walking or bending or going back to his truck. So being able to train and, and, and show the systems and processes and train them to make their own lives easier reduces the, the workload that they actually have. Because most of the time we're spending, we're spending it doing non-value added activities. If it was your property manager, their value is vetting, finding, vetting uh, tenants, you know, collecting rent and, <clears throat> and responding to problems. But they're not doing that often. What they're doing is they're spending most of their day with employees opening an email right? They open an email. They have to find the email. Then they have to go find the thing the email is talking about and relate it to itself. Uh, all the paperwork, the, the mouse that's moving, the clicking. I mean, we're getting a little bit into the weeds here about what's value added versus non-value added, but those things are exactly it. No matter what we do, there's either, is the thing accomplishing the goal or is it not? Just because it's not accomplishing the goal does not mean it's not necessary. You still might have to do it, but you can reduce that. You can give the contractor uh, a wheel box, uh, a toolbox on wheels, and he now brings his tools, tools with him effortlessly. Did that add value? Did it change my house? No, it didn't change my house, but it reduced the amount of time that he had to walk back and forth to his truck. But no one took the time to train him to do that. Instead, they'd say, you're late, you're late, you're late. Hurry up and finish that job. And then he's running more. He's more tired. He's not working smarter. He's working harder. That's why a lot of you guys in, in hospitals, you have all those color-coded stuff that have strong visual controls. It's cutting out the weeds. It's that has a red color. It means that has a blue color. The patient's ready in that room, whatever the color codes are in your areas. Those exist exactly the same way. It's whatever you do to make yourself and your lives easier. That is a great framework to see all of real estate that I think you did a phenomenal job of summing up. So to conclude in this this podcast, and again, thank you so much for taking the time out of your, your very busy Day. Um, what are some of the advice? So, what are some of the things that you would advise people to do if they're thinking about getting involved in real estate and really taking care of their finances so that they can pay for their family, have more time away from their job, not worry if they get laid off? Especially with COVID, a lot of people can't go to work, and having these extra sources of income would be really, really good. Sure. Okay. <clears throat> so. My opinion is my opinion. They're based on my life experiences. So if it doesn't agree with you, then, um, then that's okay. Your mileage may vary. But these are the things that really, really helped me. Um, again, I go back to my life experience of being like the only reason that you um, are for being grateful, right? The only reason that you weren't 
uh, uh, your life is great is because you were born to us and not born to this other family, right? And I'm, I'm talking about the uh, experience I had maybe as a six or eight year old, you know, on the streets of Shanghai. So that had that, that value there is remembering someone else always has it worse and you have a gift, right? My sister has a disability. She has a disease. Um, and I don't have that. I have, I, I owe it to myself and everyone else who can't to not waste that. So it's all about a mindset thing. All right. So now with that framework, making a decision is more important than what decision you make. That's number one. Just do it. I fail every day, 60 or 70 times a day, all the time. It's part of that lean framework. I try something. I did something. It failed. I learned. I then tried the next thing that I thought of. That failed, but it failed a little bit less. I then try the next thing. So it's rapidly failing as quickly as you possibly can and getting out all the stuff. Other people will do the opposite. They will plan and plan and plan and they'll analyze and they'll get into analysis paralysis. And it's a muscle you need to exercise. So train yourself to exercise the action muscle. Do it. Try it. Try it and try it right now. If you're listening to this and you're even slightly interested when you get off, do the thing that you wanted to do. If it's real estate, look up bigger pockets. If it's some other thing, so you want to get into surgery, whatever, go down the path, try that thing. So take action. The action you take, the decision you make is not as important as making a decision. Don't sit and plan forever. So that's, that's a huge one there that just shapes all the mindset. So it, it's one thing to say, take action, but how do you deal with the fear of failure? So you took on a huge project. You jumped in to a huge, but you did a lot of prep work, but it could have still gone sideways, but you still had a plan for that. But who knows? Like the sky could fall. How do you, how do you deal with the fear of failure that often paralyzes people? There's a, there's a, um, there's an analogy that is given. I can't remember which podcast it came from, but it was over, uh, it's called vacuum the truck. And what they were talking about is, Hey man, I want to sell my truck. Well, I don't know how to sell a truck. I have a loan against it, whatever. I'm not sure how to do this, but I know that my truck needs to be vacuumed. So I'll just kind of ignore the other stuff for now. I'll just go vacuum my truck. Okay. So I just start, I did something. I took action. I got that dopamine hit where I'm like, okay, check. Something's changing. I'm vacuuming the truck. All right. Now, well, you know what? I probably need pictures if I'm going to um, sell my truck. Now that's vacuumed. Uh, you know, so, so you just kind of keep going. It's, it's like driving through the fog. You may not be able to see forever in front of you. You may only be able to see 50 feet. But when you get to the end of that 50 feet, you can see the next 50 feet. How many countless thousands of experiences just like that did you guys have when you guys left medical school, when you entered medical school, when you entered residency? Hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea, but I showed up. Okay. Hey, go in this room and help with this thing. I did that thing. Oh, okay. You can see a little bit further. So just take the action and the first steps towards it. The reason I was able to have the confidence to take on such a big project all wildly that seems, uh, seems like that <clears throat> is because I had just spent a month, two months consuming everything I knew about real estate and practicing. And I knew enough to say, if X happens, I can look up 
look back and reflect on this. If Y happens, then I can look at this area. I'm just going to try something. And when something comes up, I will try to address it or pivot if I need to. And just not being, not being afraid, not necessarily of failing, because I love failing. I fail all the time, continuously. It's about, um, you, there's an old phrase, you win some and you learn some. Well, I learn some hundreds of times a week, and it's fantastic because you get to bring that little nugget of information all the time. Also, real quick note, when you take over any real estate property, if there's already tenants in there, make sure on day one and before you sign the deal, you know how utilities are being transferred over. Day one, moment one, buying the uh, deal, my triplex, there was one triplex, the previous owners were very stingy. They cut the power. It takes three days to get a commercial account. None of that was communicated, right? I don't know what I'm doing. So now we're rushing in December. It's 30 degrees out. Three families are in there and they have no power. So, you know, make sure that was, the, that was my very first experience with real estate. Actually acting was a huge failure. Immediately pivoted, wrote it down in the SOP. And then next deal I got, hey, who's handling utilities? Okay, we'll make sure the counts. How about you pay utilities that first month, I'll pay you back, and then we'll figure out the cutover. As you fail, you constantly are failing. It's just like driving. You're driving. If you just go in a straight line, you're going to veer off the road. So it's constant little corrections all the time. Don't be afraid of it. You guys do it every day, all day, every day. Real estate seems big and scary. It's not. It's the exact same thing straightforward day in day in day in day in i think that is a perfect way to end the podcast so hugh thank you so much for taking the time for the podcast i think it was a lot of actionable steps and uh wish you nothing but the best in your future investments i'm sure you'll be hugely successful thanks chris i really appreciate it thank you for listening if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and visit the get healthy 360 facebook page we are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again and see you next time.